Okay, well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. Um, I just want to encourage you. We had a great weekend, uh, Friday and Saturday. Um, as you know, we hosted Sam Alberry uh, for our Jesus Identity and Sexuality Conference. I think I had over 300 folks attend, and um, we're just super encouraged uh, by Sam. And I know those of you who were able to join us uh, just were really encouraged and challenged by him. Um, some of you have asked uh, who weren't able to be there if we we're going to have audio and video available. We will be making that available uh, via the website and via our podcast, uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. So encourage you, uh, strongly encourage you to check that out. It was a huge blessing, and I know it will be to you as well. But um, bookending Sam's visit, um, we did, we we're doing a two-part series uh, on what God has to say about his design for sexuality. So we're pausing in our Roman series, and we looked at that last week, and we're going to finish that two-part series this morning. And as we've been doing that, we've been looking at... Um, this passage in the Gospel of John. So if you want to grab a Bible or one of the ones in the seat back near you or pull it up on your phone, John chapter 4, it will be helpful just to have that open in front of you. And the passage I just read, uh, it's Jesus encountering this woman and having a conversation with her. And she's a woman who herself is sexually broken. And so as we look at this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, our goal is really to let this encounter uh, serve as uh, something of a mirror, that the Lord would uh, allow us to see ourselves uh, in this story and to see and reflect on our own sexual brokenness and our need for Jesus. And so as we said last week, our guiding question for last week and for this week really is, what would it look like to lay our sexuality at the feet of Jesus? What would it mean for each of us to lay our sexuality at the feet of Jesus? And so last week we talked about Uh, This idea of laying our sexuality at the feet of Jesus uh, means to be saved from our sexual idolatry. So Jesus saves us from our sexual idolatry. Uh, In other words, he saves us from this idea of believing the lie that sex is the defining and controlling aspect of our identity. Uh, And that's what our culture is bombarding us with right now. And Jesus says, no, that is not the truth. And he wants to save us from that lie and help us to understand who we are in Christ. So we talked about that last week. This week, uh, I wanna look at two more things that happen when we lay our sexuality at the feet of Jesus. And the first is this, that Jesus reveals sex as a good gift. Jesus reveals sex as a good gift from our heavenly Father. So in Matthew 19, uh, if you wanted to flip over there real quick, if you look in Matthew 19, verses four through six, Uh, this is what Jesus has to say. He's responding, he's he's talking about sex and he's responding to a group of Pharisees that have come with a question and they're asking this question uh, about divorce. They wanna know uh, from Jesus, hey, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife wife for any reason? And Jesus answers by pointing back to scripture and he points to the very beginning of the Bible. He goes all the way back to Genesis one and two and this is what he says. He says to these Pharisees, haven't you read, which they have, He's making a point. Haven't you read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what is Jesus saying? What is he saying to them with this response? I think at least two things. First, 
he's saying, look, God created humanity. So it goes back to creation. He's like, God created us as male and female. That's how he made us. And he made us as embodied sexes, right? Gender, male and female, equally made in his image. So he's communicating that. And then second, God's design for sexual activity is what the Bible calls a one flesh union. It's a one flesh union between one man and one woman. And Jesus actually, he uses this term twice in a very brief answer. And so it just highlights how significant this idea of one flesh is to Jesus. For him, it's critically important. And I just think it highlights, too, what he didn't say. He didn't say, for example, when a man and woman come together, they become one heart, right, or one soul, or even one person. They, they actually become one flesh. And so what is Jesus getting at with this idea? What's the Bible trying to tell us with this language of a one flesh union? For one, Jesus is saying that this sexual union of a man and a woman is a physical union. It's somewhat obvious with the word flesh, but that's really the emphasis, right? That it's a physical union. It involves our emotions. It involves um, our relationship. There's a relational bond. But the term flesh emphasizes the physical nature of this union. And so in other words, it's, it's as if God, the way he made us, literally physically embodied as, the way he made us as male and female is meant to fit together. Quite literally, it's meant to fit together. It's meant to complement. Our bodies complement one another. And so the oneness, in other words, of sexual union celebrates that design. So it all kind of works together, in other words. Jesus is saying, look, it celebrates God's design for the way he made us and the way he made us to come together. Sexual activity, you can almost think of it this way. Sexual activity is almost sacramental in this way. Uh, not capital S sacrament, like baptism and communion, but sacramental in the sense that it's this physical aspect of a greater spiritual reality. It's not just about what happens in the flesh, but what happens in the flesh matters because it points us to God the creator and his design of our physical bodies, our flesh. So Jesus wants to emphasize that. He's also telling us something very important about God's design for sexuality as an act of creation or a procreation uh, within marriage. So Genesis 1 says, male and female, husband and wife, are uniquely called to be fruitful and multiply. That's the verses we just read. And even, uh, I would say, even uh, for those who are married and are unable to have children, which is a, which is a very painful experience, but even in that experience, what I would say is God's design for procreation, even if the potential has been lost in a fallen and broken world, and as painful as that is, it's still God's design for children, for procreation, to come through our sexual oneness. And so, whereas our culture says that sex really ultimately is about recreation, right? It's about self-fulfillment. Actually, what God says is it's, 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 it's for procreation. It's an act of creation from a creator God. And so what does this teaching mean for us as those living in the 21st century? Well, the short answer is that of, of what Jesus has just laid out here for these Pharisees is it applies to us the same way it's applied to every Christian living in every place and every time throughout history. 
Even though we live in a, in a particular cultural moment and we may feel like it's unique, it's not all that unique. Because what Jesus says here is very clear. He's telling us some important things that we need to know as followers of Christ living out our faith in this culture. First, he's telling us that sex outside of marriage, whether it's heterosexual or it's homosexual or bisexual or any other kind of sexual, is sin. Let me just say that again. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. None of these acts outside of marriage that are sexual are in keeping with God's design, his good design, his good gift of sexuality and its purposes. And I I do want to say, we talked about this last week, that includes pornography. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery, adultery with her in his heart. Just because you don't sleep with someone doesn't mean you're off the hook, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says our problem isn't just in our actions, it's actually in our hearts. It's in our minds. And so when we look at another person lustfully for our own sexual satisfaction, Jesus says we have actually committed adultery. He does not lower the bar for us. He raises it. Adultery, sex outside of marriage. Jesus' teaching also means that same-sex marriage is not in keeping with God's design for marriage. The Bible is clear, as is the overwhelming majority of Christian teaching on sexuality across two millennia, that sexual activity between members of the same sex is a sin. I know that's hard to hear in our cultural moment, and for some of us personally, that's difficult to hear. It's very countercultural, but I do want to say it's not meant to be hateful or hurtful. We have to acknowledge that the church has not always done a good job loving those with same-sex attraction. We need to own that in the church and repent of it. We have demonized one form of sexual brokenness while we've made allowances for others. And that's wrong. We haven't done a good job uh, either distinguishing, I think, between the experience of same-sex attraction on the one hand and the expression of same-sex activity. And the two are not the same. To experience sexual desires that do not uh, uh, keep in accord with God's design is something we all experience. Having sexual desires, therefore, in itself is not sinful It's when we act on them, and act on them whether it's physically or in our minds when we act on those temptations that we go against God's will and his design, and that is sin. But I think we need to be careful about how we distinguish those two. The truth is, what Jesus is making clear is we're all in the same bucket. We're all in the same bucket. He wants us to see that we all are living in a fallen world and we all fall short, that sin touches every single part of us, including our deepest desires and feelings, and that none of us has stewarded our sexuality perfectly. None of us. Jesus doesn't want to shame us, but he does want to invite us into a space of honesty before the Lord and with one another, because he wants to break us free from these sexual strongholds, these sinful strongholds. And so he invites us to turn from sexual sin and to receive his forgiveness and receive his healing and his guidance. We are all sexually broken, all sexual sinners, all in need of Jesus. 
And we need him to reveal and restore sex as a good gift from our Heavenly Father. So when we lay our sexuality at the feet of Jesus, he saves us from the idolatry of sex. He reveals sex as a good gift from our Heavenly Father. And then finally, when we lay our sexuality at the feet of Jesus, Jesus offers us true satisfaction. True satisfaction. So back to John 4. In John 4, this Samaritan woman has come to draw water from the well. But Jesus offers her what he calls living water. And she's confused by that. She's not sure what he means. And so they have this conversation. He basically explains it. He's talking about this water that will satisfy her like nothing else can. It's a completely different kind of water. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And his great love for this woman and his great love for us, Jesus offers us what we are thirsty for, what alone can satisfy us. What he's offering this woman, what he's offering us is himself. He is the living water. And so Jesus is, is coming to her and he's coming to us and he's saying, drink from this water, this, this spring of water that will actually well up inside you and satisfy you not just once, but forever. And so how does Jesus satisfy us? How does this living water actually satisfy us? Jesus satisfies us in at least three ways. One, he satisfies our need for forgiveness. He satisfies our need for forgiveness. Notice again, we talked about this last week, how quickly he moves from her sexual brokenness, um, not because it's not important or it doesn't matter, but he moves quickly beyond that to talking about worship and who is God and who is the Messiah. And he does that because He's trying to address her ultimate problem, and her ultimate problem is actually her sin, her sin before the Lord. Her sexual brokenness, her shame, her unmet longings, all these are symptoms of deeper problems, of a deeper problem. What she ultimately needs is not cultural acceptance or a better partner or sexual fulfillment because her greatest problem and our greatest problem is not our sexual brokenness, our unmet sexual desires, our broken marriages, our frustrated dating relationships. Our biggest problem is not even our unmet longings. Our greatest problem is our sin. It's our sin against God. We've not known God. We've not loved him. We've not honored him. We've not lived according to his good and perfect will for us, including in the area of our sexuality. So like this woman, what we need, what we're thirsty for is forgiveness. Sex can't give you forgiveness. What she was thirsty for, what we're thirsty for is to be reconciled to God. And sex can't reconcile us to God. So like this woman at the well, we need Jesus to save us. We need his grace. We need him, his living water poured out in our lives. We need him to reveal to us who we were made to be in him. And the good news is that we can be forgiven and we can have life. That Jesus has satisfied God's justice on our behalf at the cross. Every sexual sin that you have ever committed along with every other sin, is forgiven in Christ. Jesus says you are clean. 
So Jesus satisfies us in our need for forgiveness. He satisfies us with the peace and contentment of God. In Jesus, we have the peace and contentment of God that we hunger for, we thirst for. Jesus offers us hope, hope to the sexually broken. In other words, he offers hope to all of us because we're all sexually broken. For those who struggle with same-sex attraction in particular, I just wanna encourage you, he offers you peace. For our friends, our neighbors who struggle with same-sex attraction, Jesus offers them peace, good news. Sam Albury shared this weekend, um, I thought this was really helpful to understand. He said, the greatest struggle for followers of Jesus with same-sex attraction is not remaining celibate, in other words, not having sex. It's not even the, the, the lack of being able to experience romance or marriage, as difficult as those may be, and they are difficult. He said, the greatest struggle is loneliness. It's loneliness. It's the fear of never being truly known and loved. Many struggle with that same fear. Single people, married people, a lot of people struggle with that fear, never being known and loved. I found this interesting. The number of uh, single people in our nation, this is according to a census in 2015, says that 45% of the U.S. population over 18 is unmarried, is single. It's almost half of the country is single. Um, that's a huge percentage of our population that is not experiencing life through the lens of marriage, but as a single person. I just think that's really significant for us as a church because we want, as a church, as the church, we want to hold up God's good design for sex and for marriage and celebrate sexuality within marriage and celebrate healthy and godly families, but we shouldn't hold out married life as the only way to the good life in Jesus. And I think we have at times. I think the church has done that. We've made singleness out to be something weird, especially if you're of a certain age. We've made singleness feel like a second-rate experience or somehow you failed at something. We left singles between a rock and a hard place. The world tells them on one hand their sexual expression is the only way to fulfillment and wholeness. And on the other hand, the church often says marriage is the only way to fulfillment and wholeness. And so, tough. But singleness does not mean less than, according to Jesus. And the clearest evidence of that is Jesus, right? Jesus himself was the healthiest and most complete human who ever walked the earth. And he was single. We can say that Jesus, well, he's Jesus. That's different. I'm not Jesus. How does that help me? Well, what the Bible says is that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Fully human means that he experienced all that we experience in our humanity. And that matters. It means that like Jesus, you, you don't have to know romantic embrace and you don't have to know what it means uh, to, to feel the, the joy of parenting, for example, to be fully human and to live a fulfilled life as a human being. Jesus did and we can too. And, and I would just say this too, uh, you know, a church that's full of only families, 
right? And only married people is not a beautiful thing. So we've got that image in our head. We need to, we need to deal with that because it's not whole. It's not a whole picture of the body of Christ. It's not a whole family. We, we're called to be a family. And so we need to make sure that we're careful about holding out marriage and single life, both as godly ways of following Christ, fulfilling lives in Christ. And I think we need to be careful too not to think that marriage is some kind of solution to loneliness and sexual brokenness. If you are lonely and sexual broke, sexually broken and you get married, you will be a married, lonely, and sexually broken person. It doesn't fix the problem. That more times than off, not that it will compound the problem. I think when we admit that, it actually does something in our hearts. When we can admit our need, it actually opens us up to Jesus. Because what it says is, look, I, the possibility of true contentment and peace are, are not going to be found in a relationship on, in this world. And it's not going to be found in a romantic embrace. It's not going to be found with a perfect family. It's only going to be found in Jesus. And so then we can believe that Jesus alone actually satisfies us. Because he's the only one that can. So Jesus satisfies us with forgiveness, peace, and contentment. And then briefly, I just want to say this last thing, he, he, he satisfies us with his church. He satisfies us with the family of God, with his church. Our sexuality points to our need to connect with each other and our desire for intimacy and family, and that's a good thing. Jesus teaches in Matthew 21 that physical marriage doesn't persist in heaven, but family does, his family does. It's an eternal family, and the family that God is forming here and now, we get to participate in here and now now and for eternity. And so the church is meant to be this place where anyone can find family, that anyone can call home. And that means it needs to be a place where people are more than just nice. We are a nice group of people. Like people come here and they feel warmly welcomed and loved. Praise God, right? And we want them to feel that, but we want them to feel the family of God as well. We want to invite them into real relationships in this place as we follow Christ together. We want to be a people who are willing to be honest and vulnerable and real, and we need to be a place where people can feel truly known and truly loved in Christ. Our Sam Albury said this uh, over the weekend at one point. He said, his pastor, Ray Ortland, uh, has said that in the church, you can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. You can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. This is a place where we want people to feel known. And that starts with us. It starts with our commitment to each other. It means opening up our homes, making room in our schedules. It means creating time and space for fellowship. It means sacrifice. But it's beautiful. It's the family of God. It's who we are and what we get to be a part of. And we want to invite others to do that. If we want to experience the life that Jesus offers us, we have to take up the way of Jesus. And that means as a church, we want to be a refuge for the sexually broken people in our lives and in our world. A place of healing and hope, and that means really living like family, like God's family. So will we lay our sexuality at Jesus' feet? That's the question I want us to consider. I want you to pray through and talk with the Lord about what would this look like? Go back over last week and this week and just think through what would it mean to lay your sexuality at the feet of Jesus. Maybe you need to be delivered from some idolatry in your own heart. 
Maybe you need to be reminded that it's God's good gift. Maybe you need to be reminded that he alone can truly satisfy us. So I invite you to consider that question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who made us and knows us and loves us. And Lord, we know that because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and to rise from the dead for us, that we might have life with you for eternity, life to the fullest. And Lord, your work is to bring complete and total healing and restoration in our lives. And so Lord, we pray that, especially over our sexuality. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that know who we are in Christ. Lord, that would experience the fullness of life in him and experience the fullness of healing and forgiveness for our sexual sin and brokenness. Lord, I pray for each person here. Holy Spirit, I pray you would minister to them right where they are. That you'd speak words of truth and grace to them. Lord, I pray for the hearts that are breaking for family members, for friends, for neighbors who are struggling with their sexuality. I pray for the marriages that are struggling. I pray for the single person that's struggling with pornography. Lord, I pray for whatever is going on in any of our lives in this area of sexuality. Lord, you know it. And you don't invite us to come to you in shame, but to come to you and receive forgiveness. So I pray for confession and repentance and deliverance from sexual sin and bondage. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.